0: Welcome to Sundays on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And we have a fascinating guest today, an old friend, Erica Heller, who has a new book out, One Last Lunch, which is, um, you and I were just talking about this.
2: Yes, we were, actually. <laughs> One Last Lunch uh, is a uh, an exercise, if you will, on uh, looking inward to who I think you would like to have... Uh, a meal with an intimate, uh, you know, repast of, of food and conversation uh, of somebody who's no longer in their earthly form. Uh, if I am stating it correctly,
0: I guess you are. Well, Erica will, feel, you know, she'll <laughs> let you know if you got it wrong. But it's strange because, of course, as Erica, I'm sure, will tell us, this book has been in the making for a while, way before the virus, the pandemic, and yet there is that feeling of longing now. I think more what do you think song
2: oh well yeah i mean uh anytime that uh there are events greater than any of us that that change our paths uh and our expectations i think there's it it touches on our mortality a little bit it touches on um introspection tends to be a place i go to and when that happens uh you know i think um there, there's a need not so much for even connection uh, with with any one person, but there's a need to feel like life has purpose and that you're on a path. And I do think that in there, uh, there are ample opportunities every day to have a different kind of connection, not the typical American capitalist connection of go out and conquer. And and, but more really the human uh, connection of um, somehow trying to feel Purpose and feel alive.
0: That's what I think. Wow! Can I put that on a (laughs) (laughs) T-shirt? Better be an XXL. (laughs) Yeah, right. Anyway, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have haven't read the whole book. Um, Erica can spank me later, but I have like browsed, and it's so, it's so fascinating to me because it isn't what I expected it to be. I expected the book, and I'll be honest, I expected it to be like a little maudlin, and instead, it's very amusing. It is written by, you know, the people who are who, who write about the other people that they would like to have one last lunch with are amazing writers. I mean, there's just, mm-hmm. you know, incredible people in there. Clarence Major, you know, is an incredible poet and artist writing about uh, James Baldwin. I mean, it's, it's so fantastic. And then there's the people that you, you kind of expect. There's a lot of, dare I say it, We we both have them, daddy issues, right? Daddy
2: (laughs) issues, but I I do think that uh, just because, I mean, you can look at it coldly or you can look at it emotionally, but, you know, men tend to depart, depart earlier than women. And and so fathers tend to leave before moms. And I certainly know if I could have uh, a lunch with my dad again, uh, that would be uh, spectacular. There'd be so much I'd want to share. About who, the man I became, yeah. and the person that I am uh, since uh, we last were physically in the same place. Um, when did when did
0: Mel die? He passed in 1992.
2: That's right. Um, and uh, very, you know, he was 58. He was pretty young, and wow. um, you know, and and, and there's a par- paradox I certainly felt in that I could not have become the man that I I am had he stayed alive even though I wish he stayed alive. I'm exactly, you know, I'm
0: in the same place with Warner because like if my dad had stayed alive, I don't know what would have happened with Tavern on the Green or whatever, but I I was definitely a New York girl and I really wasn't in my heart. Like I really couldn't wait to leave. So him dying gave me the freedom to move away. I never moved on of course, but to move away, but God, of course I would love to have one last lunch with my dad, but Oh my God, a, a lunch with Warner. That would go on for days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. And, and, you know, it's like what's funny is the things that, that, that you remember about parents or, you know, like my dad loved tuna salad, right? Like this is like such a strange thing. And I have not been able to eat tuna salad without thinking of my dad since he's been gone. And it becomes almost this ritual where I taste it a little bit differently than other food. He also, uh, as for nothing, the last thing he had on this planet before he, he left uh, was a glazed donut. And so that's the same thing. I cannot
0: have a glazed, have a glazed, donut. glazed
2: donut without thinking of my pop. So food does connect us emotionally on that level. Well, it's offer. so
0: interesting also that Erica, you know, as the editor of this, of this collection, you know, chose a lunch rather than a dinner or a breakfast. Because a dinner is so... I don't know. It's, it seems so kind of like ponderous and lengthy and there's wines involved and it's candles you know, There's all this stuff, but a lunch is like, you're kind of in and out. It's, it's less, it's more casual yeah. and friendly. And it's such a wonderful yeah. idea. I really, you you're know, actually
2: spurring. And I know this is yeah. the point of the book, but but when I was 23 and just out of university, uh, my, my pop actually asked me to come have lunch with him in, in, in New York city. And, and, uh, I went and met him and, uh, he said, come on, we're going to take a ride, which which to me, I knew that meant that we were going on a racetrack, because that, that's one of the things he liked to do. And uh, we got in, in his car, and we drove out to Belmont, uh, <laughs> and it's because uh, he was friendly with a guy named C- Caesar Kimmel, who... Uh,
0: Relation to Jimmy Kimmel?
2: No, no. Caesar Kimmel actually was one of the people that, that was high up on the Warner Brothers family in the 70s, and owned the Pittsburgh Pirates, and owned a lot of racehorses, and... and Caesar uh, said, "Hey, I have a horse running that that may may rape." And <laughs> and so now the lunch is we're, we're driving, and, and of course in that in that lunch uh, period, you know, my, my dads asked me about my life. In 23, I'm out of college. What am I doing? So there's a lot of like parent stuff going on. But we get out to the racetrack, and we and we get out into the paddocks, and uh, we see the trainer, and we ask the trainer, "Well, how's the horse looking?" Trainer says, "You know, the horse the horse has had a hernia, so if his testicles are having. Uh, he'll run really well. Uh, if not, uh, it's anybody's guess. And then he left. So then me and my pop, we were there and we're actually kind of bending down trying to like see, see the horse's
0: We testicle. Neither one of us
2: know uh, what that's supposed to look like. But we decided they were. And, and we went, we made a bet and the horse won and paid eight to one. And then on the way home, we just laughed the entire time. Oh, so th- those are the kind of moments I think when you think about one last lunch, it's it's that stuff. It's being that child again, yeah. knowing that you're protected, knowing or, or that, that you are with somebody that's going to take you on an adventure. I definitely would. would.
0: That's amazing. I'd give a
2: testicle to have that lunch again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you only have one left. So you hey might now. want to go, hey, now. <laughs> anyway, we're going to take a little break and bring our guest Erica Heller on to discuss her new book, One Last Lunch. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy coming to you on WLIW 88.3 FM, Long Island's only NPR station. You can also stream us online at WLIW.org slash radio. We'll be right back. We're back. Sunday's on the East End. Bridget Leroy and Alex Sokolow. And uh, we'd like to bring on our guest, Erica Heller. Erica, hi, how
1: are you? Hi, I'm good. I'm good for being in my house for 3,000 days. (laughs) But who's counting? where, where, Where are you at the moment? I'm in the city and you may hear the IRT beneath me. I hope not going through <laughs> you're
0: in the same building as uh, as my parents, as mom and Tony, right? Yes. Yes. So we go way back at least uh, like elevator rides together and yes. so on. This, I mean, this isn't your first book, but I want to, I want to start with this one yes. because uh, one last lunch, uh, you know, I, can I actually read a little portion from your intro if that's okay? A couple of paragraphs.
1: Yeah. As long as I don't have to do it, you can do it. I, <laughs> I know you told you, yes. you
0: let me know that. So I'm just going to read I took a little screenshot of this because it was uh, really interesting. You wrote, we almost always feel that a loved one's death has cheated us of critical time together. Some people are lucky in that they really do have time to say everything. When my saintly but sassy mother was diagnosed with lung cancer in 1994, I quit my job, moved in to care for her, and thus began an honest, ever-ranging conversation with virtually no boundaries that lasted a year and a half. With my father, it was quite the opposite, a call in the middle of the night telling me that he had succumbed to a massive heart attack. Still, I'd give anything to be able to sit around at lunch with one or both of them on a bright, cheerful day. I would laugh and reminisce with with my mother, luxuriously cloaked once more in her warmth, wit, and tenderness. With my father, I would finally get the chance to ask the big questions I'd always been afraid to ask, hopefully elicit some rarely exhibited gentleness and unscramble and decipher some of the constantly crossed wires that helped contribute to a lifetime of cryptic, slow-simmering intolerance from him. It was this lunch, trapped in my imagination but making itself known repeatedly, like a door in the wind that keeps banging away but never quite slams shut, that led me to the basis for this book. Erica, that's beautiful. Um, I'm going to cry. <laughs> well, I mean, so we'll all cry it's it's healing no that's, um, that's
2: that's spectacular and of
0: course for people who haven't made the connection of course your father was you know one of the great writers of the 20th century joe heller and uh also a resident of the same building and a frequent right elevator
2: person so, so erica all right i'm i'm gonna be the the the, the male brain here i just want to ask as a writer was it like I'm just I'm jumping way past we're gonna come back to that okay. uh, when you grow up where one of your parents has such a big shadow in a field and you are interested in going into that field as well and pursuing that what were some of the hurdles and challenges you had internally in your own process uh, to to find your voice as a writer
1: that's a, an interesting question i First of all, I never set out to be a writer, and uh, the way I did it was I was in advertising for 30 years as a copywriter. So to me, that wasn't really writing. <laughs> it wasn't really certainly stepping on his toes in any way. It was conti- sort of you know contingency thing. But uh, then I sort of segued into writing writing um but i had very little to do with him about it i wouldn't show him my work uh he wouldn't show me his work yeah i never you know it was never a question of i felt of being in a shadow because it was such a great such a great shadow i mean who could who could Get yeah. out from that so I just went about my business and uh, yeah I'm about to say literally it seems like a catch-22 and I realized
2: that, <laughs> yes. that that you've only heard that a gazillion times yeah of course um but that it is like uh I know as a writer uh it, it took me years to fully understand my process my process of thought my philosophy of how I want to put words together and thoughts and frame things um, and I'm always interested in the journey that other uh, writers and creators have when it comes to their process.
0: You know, I, I just want to throw in, uh, Erica, because I really relate to what you say about being a copy editor, not actually being, quote unquote, real writing. <laughs> because, um, you know, my mom's a writer, yes. she's a successful children's book writer. I come from an artistic family. And so I felt like I ran as far from that kind of fictional life as I could by being a journalist. Right. But The truth is, I was still writing. I just, I didn't. I had the same thing you did. I didn't equate it to Jen. I didn't equate it to writing, writing because I wasn't. It wasn't between between two covers with a with a jacket on it. You know what I mean?
1: Well, it was the only way I think I could get into writing was to try to separate myself from that. And you asked what what drawbacks I think there were um, in having him as a somebody asked that right. Um, The main thing that comes to mind, oddly enough, is that every advertising job I had, within the first week, my boss would tell me that they had to have lunch with him. (laughs) Oh, wow. And that was sort of, after five jobs or so, it was, I mean, he was nice enough to go, but, you know, I have been associated with him, and sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not so good right
0: but also and and not putting you on the spot this is of course friendly conversation but your your book Yosarian slept here was kind of uh, about him as yes. well so listen joe was an absolutely fascinating character as a writer and as a person and um And I'm sure he has an enormous fan base to this day. I mean, like him and and Kurt Vonnegut and others, you know, (laughs) have that kind of like rabid fan base. So, you know, how did you like, how did you create your own voice after, you know what I mean? After, after dealing with the kind of the dad stuff, how did you find your own voice? Well,
1: part of it was by never reading his books, frankly. Um, <laughs> that's one, one thing that that's how
0: I got through high school through. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you hear Alec he's like that's how I got through high I have school I've never yeah, no, ever
1: read Catch 22 um, mm-hmm. I read that's Something awesome. Happened which was about our family and right. was very painful and I didn't want to read him after that and to tell you the truth so I kind of knew what he was all about and, and what an impact he had on literature, but I never got that close to his work where it would intimately intimidate me just in general.
0: Yeah. Well, then let's get back to what I've just read from, uh, the introduction to your latest book, One Last Lunch. It came from a place of longing it sounds like with that door kind of banging, but never quite closing. Uh, And I know that you, you have said you, you were maybe emotionally unready to actually read from your passages. And we totally respect that, but it is interesting that you framed the book um, with, with all of these fantastic writers and and essayists and and Mm -hmm. actors and uh, everybody. But the first uh, lunch and the last lunch are both you right. with your father. And so it's almost like you bookended your book with your own experiences. Uh, tell me about your process in deciding well, on that. Uh, somewhere
1: along, it took a long time to put this together to find people who knew these people that we wanted to read about who were willing to do it. I mean, I woke up, I would say for a year and sent out maybe a hundred emails a day looking for the process wasn't finding someone and asking who they wanted to write about. It was picking the person and then finding someone who could and would. And in many cases, I, you know, I assumed it would be impossible. Jackie Onassis, I knew nobody would, you know, volunteer for that. And I had to go through many, many people to finally find someone.
0: Well, was it like that in every case? Or did some of them go the other direction where you were like, yeah, I really want to have this person write. You can write about whoever you want. Or No,
1: you- no, I was not interested in that. I had lists of people who I thought I would find fascinating but I didn't always know that I'd be able to get somebody. I mean, and there were some I didn't get.
2: So that's a fascinating edit unto itself. So how did you, you know, make this list?
1: I started with, I didn't, I didn't think this could be done. First of all, I never really thought I would have to go through with it because it seems so unlikely that you know, just emotionally, And um, with people's egos and being edited and preventing people from violating people's privacy. And I basically, in my head, I started with Steve Jobs, Christopher Hitchens, and I forget who the third, it may have been Jackie O., And I thought, if I can get them, people who will do (laughs) honest-to-goodness, imaginative, emotional, honest lunches with them, then maybe I can get other people to do that. And he was like the first one who signed on, and I was flabbergasted. I never thought I would get a lunch with Steve Jobs. And his, as you can see, is in wonderful... Cartoon form. And he did it overnight and sent it to me. And it was not a big deal.
2: <laughs> I'm looking at the list right now, just so, again, so our listeners could have a sense is, you know, it, it's your pop. It's James Baldwin. Be great to have a lunch with James Baldwin. I, right. I would think Tallulah Bankhead. That's a fascinating uh, name. Uh, Jean Michel Basquiat.
0: Yeah, Basquiat. Uh, I
2: heard he was a nibbler. I like <laughs> a lunch. I salad. Thin- uh, no, no, a little Edie
0: Beale. Right, and you had uh, who was it? It did the documentarian. That's why I really want to concentrate. I, earlier, I said this is not maudlin. That lunch, that one with uh with Muffy Mater, is it? And uh and little Edie are in like a a, a a deli. They're like at a walkout deli in Canada. Like where is it? Was in Montreal or Quebec? And it sounds like something that actually occurred. But these are all fictional, aren't they? Well, she also.
1: Uh, stayed friends with her after Grey Gardens and she had a huge trove of letters from Edie so she said that made it a lot easier to bring her voice back somehow. You know? but you know there was nothing I, I felt in all the lunches and not all of the writers agreed with me that details were very important I wanted to feel like i was at the next table eavesdropping i wanted to know the pickles were on the table or the napkin fell on the floor and muffy meyer really went through those paces and we really could get a sense of of eating and how eccentric she was and and a little sad uh but it was entertaining
0: well, I, I mean, I loved yours, uh, the, the, your first one with, with your dad. Um, you know, being uh, like Danny Meyer meeting <laughs> you at right. the door and yeah. Carl going on to talk. Right. I mean, it just sounded so like East End. Like we've oh, all been.
1: That part was true. He used to meet us at the door when we would go there.
0: That's amazing. You know, uh,
2: uh, just to continue, though. So you, you have uh, Daniel Bello, uh having lunch with uh,
1: Saul. He took a little. He took a little persuading, but there was a lot of negotiating involved in this, and some begging. <laughs> some people passed it to another sibling, and um, Daniel did a great job. I mean, he he kept saying, "I'm not a writer. I'm not a writer," and a lot of these people are not. And still, they each brought something to it that. I thought it was, was really magical because they knew these people and we didn't. And there were things that we found out that we never would have known. And now you're going to ask me what? And, I, and nothing comes to mind immediately.
0: But, you know, we're actually going to take a, another little break here. But um, I, as Alec just said, I see other apthorpians yeah, on here right. like Nora Ephron and Bobby Balaban, other neighbors. It's like old home week here. Uh, but we'll be right back. We're talking with Erica Heller, Heller about her latest book, One Last Lunch, a, a series of fascinating essays uh, by well-known people, about well-known people. And uh, we're just going to take a quick break. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Ockler. Here on WLIW 88.3 FM. We'll be right back.
1: to
0: We're back, Sunday's on the East End, and I want to jump right in because the one that fascinates me the absolute most, and I think you're going to know which one it is, is Kirk Douglas writing about his dad. I mean, Kirk Douglas, he must have been 100 when he wrote this for you, and his dad was born like in 1860 or something. I, I mean, that was a tough one. I don't remember. I remember
1: writing to agents and managers and waiting, and I sort of forgot and assumed you know, a lot of these people I wrote to, I never heard anything back from, most of them. And I got a an email from this woman who I gather was his caretaker. And she said, basically, read his book. He had done a, a, an autobiography. So basically, she and I wrote this together. And... He had to approve everything, but he didn't actually, I don't think he was up to actually sitting down and writing, but he was very, very, uh, definite about us getting everything right. And it was a very moving lunch to me. I mean, there were so many people in this book, uh, myself included, unfortunately, still looking for a parental approval and... To know that Kirk Douglas worried about what his father thought of his profession, and it was it was just phenomenal to me.
0: Our dear friend Kate O'Toole wrote about her father Peter O'Toole as well.
1: right that was a wonderful lunch that was I, I wanted to be at that lunch. <laughs>
0: Well, I haven't read that one yet, but when I was in Ireland last year is when I first heard about this book because Kate was singing your praises about What an unbelievable editor. And, you know, Erica, let's get to that because seriously, I mean, you came up with this list. I mean, this must have, this required an enormous amount of passion and tenacity for you to actually, you know, wrangle this book out of all of these people kind of what kept going? What was it you wanted?
1: I, looking back, I think I must have been mad to do it.
2: <laughs> well, like all good uh, works of art, uh, so, find line between uh, genius and madness.
1: Well, thank you. But I, I guess I saw once the ball started to roll, I got more and more determined to really do this. Because in the beginning, as I said, I really didn't think I would be able to find people. And, uh, in, in many cases it was tough to, and in certain cases I couldn't, I wanted Marilyn Monroe. I wanted Mike Nichols and, um, a whole list of people. And there was just nobody comfortable with doing something honest or using their imagination. I mean, there was so much imagination in this. That's something else that blew me away. I mean, nobody really approached this the same as anybody else. I mean, we have prints flying through the Beverly Hills Hotel, literally flying, and, you know, things like that are, they're priceless to me.
0: How did you find kind of a common editorial, I'm speaking as an editor here, you know, an editorial standpoint to kind of, like I said before, wrangle all of these. I mean, you had the cartoon from, from uh, Lee Clow. You know, you had all of these different ways people expressed themselves. How did you um, make it cohesive?
1: Well, I gave them each, it was like an assignment. And they could do it however they wanted to. We also had a very famous cartoonist, Elwood Smith, who did a whole thing about his art teacher who changed his life. And uh, it was all drawing. picked up the tab for that one. <laughs> and there was also a poem Helma Wallitzer wrote about Maxine Quimmin. And so I just sort of told them what I wanted, but that they could do it in any way that was comfortable for them, and to try to use their imagination. And boy, did they!
2: Yeah. yeah. All right. So the one that's jumping out for me is, is uh, Jesus Christ. So I knew I
0: knew you. you were Reverend go.
2: George Pitcher had wanted or had lunch <laughs> with Jesus Christ. I, I hear Christ, he always turned over tables,
0: right? I, I just, <laughs> Only if you were a moneylender. <laughs> right. Um, no, so uh, what was can that you, one? Can you tell we both went to Trinity right. and had a religious education? <laughs> what, what was that one all
1: about? Well, in this one, actually, Jesus is a waiter at the restaurant. Um, and George Pitcher, who is an Anglican priest in England, um decided to write about him and i i i didn't think anyone would allow that at the publisher or people would be offended but it's just a a a very strange lunch where it takes him a little while to to believe and understand that that's who is serving him and then they have a little discussion and they have a few jokes about loaves and fishes yeah, yeah, And um, it's a it's a very soothing lunch, I think, because this man has devoted himself to religion. Um, he's also a, a journalist and a few other things that are not religious, but, uh, right, but it's very nifty to, to imagine <laughs> a, a server is
2: uh jesus and uh, it takes you a while to realize that, right
1: and he didn't leave a tip that was the thing i remember (laughs) (laughs) uh, i guess you don't feel you have to
0: so what was one that you like when it came in you were like yes score and what was the one that got away that you really wish had been in there
1: uh the one that made me absolutely hysterical laughing with tears rolling down my cheeks was Malachi McCord.
0: Oh my God, I love Malachi. Writing
1: about his brother Frank. And Angela. his style, I, I don't know how to classify it. It's, it's just casual and beautiful and hilarious. He refers to Frank's ex-wife as the War Department every time mm-hmm. he...
0: <laughs> us a minute for that one. <laughs>
1: and once I saw that, and the whole thing was just kind of magical. And he takes us right to when Frank died, and it was all very touching, but it wasn't maudlin. It
0: was Malachi was out here a lot on the East oh, End. Really. And years he had a house, yeah. I saw we saw him all the time in Sag Harbor. I've never a, met
1: him, and I've mm-hmm. never spoken to him. Um, uh, most of these people I've never met or spoken to, which is very interesting, I Yeah,
0: that is. Um, especially in this time of coronavirus, like, look, here we are, Alec and I happen to be in one room, and you are, you know, 60 miles away, right? And, <laughs> wow, dude. But uh, so that was the score. What was one that you really, really, really wished you had gotten in there and and it just didn't go in? Truthfully, um,
1: there weren't any. We we had more to pick from than are in the book. Some of them just couldn't be worked with. And uh, there was one guy who said, if you change one comma, you're paying me $10,000. And he he wasn't kidding.
0: (laughs) Let me just go through a few of these. We're talking with Erica Heller about her latest book, One Last Lunch, which is a series of what it sounds like, people writing about One Last Lunch with someone that they wish they had known or did know. Like we talked, there's a lot of parental approval to use your words. And just to give an idea of some of them, we've got Anne Serling and Rod Serling. We have uh, Cameron West and Robin Williams. James Grissom and Tennessee Williams, Richard Lewis and Jonathan Winters, and of course you and your own father, Joseph Heller, um, Robert Chalmers and Lou Reed, Lou also being a a Springs resident. What was that one like? That was a very bitter,
1: uh, angry one, and I wasn't sure that the publisher would allow it in the book. I was happily surprised because I really didn't want just one sugar bowl of everything sweet and happy. And this was, I I think they had met once before he, Robert had interviewed him and it was, and I think one of them left in the middle. I know because they just hated each other. And I had a really, Robert is an old friend. I had to really lean on him. Um, to do this, because he really didn't want to even think about Lou Reed ever again.
2: And that's also a little tricky in my mind, because if if there's that kind of animosity that that is buried, uh, to not allow somebody to respond to somebody's animosity seems a little tricky.
1: But it was very interesting, I think, because it was so different. You know, there was no hero worship there. (laughs)
0: That's amazing. So tell us like, okay, so the, the you get all of these together, your publisher has been waiting for this. You, you get it in print and then coronavirus. So what have you been like, how have you been, I guess, and this is a, for all authors who right now are, are, you know, not able to do book tours or book signings and so on.
1: It's a nightmare. We have the virus. We have, protests all over the country and we have an election coming up thank god and Mm -hmm. uh all of these things are very distracting when you want somebody to sit down and read your book Uh, right it's i can't think of a worse time in my lifetime to launch a book really and I'm very grateful for you giving me the time to talk about it because there are not many opportunities that might have been.
2: I might be preaching to the choir here, but I would argue that there's never been a more uh, important time to uh, curl up with a a book and, uh, you know, be inspired, Uh, that that there are so many things out of our control uh, on an almost daily basis. and, And yet... I certainly find a good book uh, touches me uh, to my day.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you know when you were talking before about what how the virus has changed things for you. I think for me, it has altered my whole notion of time and time that we have left with people. And you know, we all know that we have a sell-by date. (laughs) And we know people are gonna be taken from us, but I think this, you know, I had a friend whose both parents died within two days of each other of the virus, and they were totally healthy before. And so it sort of was like whiplash for me about time and appreciating the people who are in your life and who means
0: something to you. Oh, it's so interesting. That, I mean, clearly you, you were, you know, focused on this book way before. Yes. This sort of social distancing happened. So it seems like it's even more profound now. I think
1: people. so. Yeah. Like,
0: and also it's not linear. Like you can pick up this book anywhere. It's not, it doesn't, it's, these are all different ideas. different, right. Right. different people. Tell me a little bit about uh, another East End denizen, Bob Balaban, who was actually just out here. (laughs) And Groucho Marx. Like, did you you, did you hit Bobby up in particular to do Groucho?
1: Yes. That was one isolated case where I wrote to him and I said, you know, everyone who's ever lived, um, who would be fun for you to write a, a lunch with? And right away he had Groucho, and um, it's very charming. I think. Um, yeah. So he he was one of the very few that I went to first and asked what he wanted to do, and I was just I was thrilled that he would do anybody, um, but Groucho was great.
0: Well, besides the, the people in this book and, of course, your own book ending it with with one last or two last lunches with your father, Joseph Heller, who else would you – is there anyone else who's come come to your mind since this book has been published? They were like, yeah, I would love to have lunch with that person.
1: Well, I'll tell you, honestly, the person I really wanted to have lunch with was my mother. Um Shirley because she's gone about 25 years and I miss her terribly to this day. But I knew that if you've had lunch enough with your mother, you know, everything that you're going to say, you know, what you, what subjects are going to come up. You're going to bicker. You're going to make up. Maybe you're going to go shopping afterwards. It's all kind of a template. And, I didn't think there would be anything special for anybody else to read about with her. But it started with that because I wanted to so much have another chance to be with her and tell her everything that she had meant to me. Because even though I had a year and a half with her at the end, I don't think she quite understood that. And then, you know, my father was my father, and I knew people would want to read about him. And I figured, you know, I have to bite the bullet, and I knew it would be harder for me, but in a strange way, it was satisfying.
2: At the top of our conversation, you had talked about, uh, or maybe when Bridget was reading uh, from the book, the big questions you wanted to ask your father, um, did, in your two essays uh, with with your lunches with your dad, did you uh, ask those questions in those essays?
1: I tried to, and he cut off the conversation. I wanted to know if he loved me, and he would just sort of reroute the conversation. He didn't discuss things like that. And I think I he says in, in the lunch, if you got me here to argue uh, about this, I'm not doing it. And I never wanted to argue. I just wanted to ask him that question.
0: It's interesting since it's a fictionalized account. I mean, it's just interesting, the human psyche being what it is. I would probably have the same kind of thing with my father because I don't think I could... I mean, I know my dad loved me, and you know, but he was an awful and terrible. You remember yes. my dad. <laughs> There were, certain, there were certain leaps that even if I was fictionalizing a luncheon with him, I'm not sure if I would be able mm-hmm. to make.
1: Well, the last lunch with my father in here really didn't feel like fiction. It kind of wrote itself. And I pushed myself to ask that question, but I also knew he would never answer it. Oh, that's got
2: to be so complicated for you as a person. To- yes. <laughs>
0: We're going to take another little break, Erica. We only have a few minutes, but uh, we're going to come back and and wrap up, talk about one last lunch, talk about anything else you want to talk about, how people can find the book. Um, You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And on WLIW 88.3 FM, also streamable online at wliw.org/slash radio. We're speaking with Erica Heller about her latest book of essays, One Last Lunch, and we're gonna be right back. Let's go! Let's go crazy. Let's, get nuts.
1: The fun, 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 Let's go.
0: We're back. With Erica Heller on Sundays on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy. And Alma um, McFarlane. And Erica, One Last Lunch. Uh, so this book, is its it can be a, a light book that you kind of keep next to the toilet and read every once in a while. But it also <laughs> sounds like this incredibly kind of therapeutic journey for so many people.
2: And, and, and basically, you know, you don't shit where you eat.
0: We so. don't even say that word anymore on oh, the air. Really? We're not there for the like important meeting. I
1: Frankly, I pictured it on night tables, but not not in bathrooms. But
0: <laughs> why not? Well, wherever, people can read it. Have any of the essays been published elsewhere, like The New Yorker, or anything like that on the horizon? A couple of things have been
1: published. Um, Jesse Cornbull's Nora Ephron Lunch was published in a couple of places.
2: My mom was very close with Nora, and uh, when Nora passed, uh, I accompanied my mom, uh, you know, the day after she passed, to a, a small little luncheon at uh, Nora and Nick's on, on the east side at that point. And, and the thing that was so interesting to me was that Nora had planned the menu. And so uh, it, it, was, it was very specific to wines, the champagnes, but also the food, where it was going to come from, everything. And I always thought that was fascinating to me wow i should
1: have found you to write this
0: i would have written about mike nichols too i mean i knew (laughs) next book i had
1: known really
0: but erica to to kind of bring it home i mean this is also the part we haven't touched on is the food part and how food brings people together and breaking bread you get out of what were some of the more simple ones i guess like Little Edie uh, at, at a deli, but some of the more uh, complex meals that might have been written about.
1: I don't know if the meals were complex, but Tracy Tynan cooked for her father, Kenneth Tynan, mm-hmm. who was not easy to please. And she was very nervous about cooking for him. And she made beef bourguignon and it was a nervous wreck. And of course, I was rooting for him to say that it was wonderful. And I think, I think begrudgingly at some point, he said it was good.
0: But it's so amazing because again, this is a fictional account of her cooking for, you know, her father who is now gone, who of course we all know is like a very harsh critic, Mm. a wonderful writer, But, but to choose to cook something like beef bourguignon, I probably would have gone with something like a burger or something like easier in order to, you know, to, to overcome the impasse. But it's. And I, and I, I would have ordered it out. Right. It was just so interesting that people really brought their A game to this and didn't pull any punches in their relationships.
1: And the other thing that was delightful about that lunch was after the beef bourguignon, she apparently they had both loved Toblerone. And so she had a big Toblerone for them for dessert. <laughs> And he was very happy with that. Oh, good.
0: <laughs> Erica, this has been so wonderful. We're, we're coming to the end of our, of our show. Um, what's next? What, do you, what else are you? Are you working on something already, or are you kind of basking in the glow? Yes. I,
1: I'm not basking because I would like – it's very hard to get the word out about a book right now.
2: So where can people find this book?
1: Well, they could. Uh, they can buy it on Goodreads and BNN Online, Amazon, um, any independent book, online bookseller. Um, it can be bought everywhere, but people have to know about it. And um, so I'm not basking exactly. And I'm a nervous wreck because unless I have an idea that I'm working on, I'm sort of um, panicked, and there was. I would like to end this with a quote that I think is wonderful, which was by Franz Kafka, who said, "A non-writing writer is a monster courting insanity." <laughs> oh, amen wow. to that. Yeah,
2: we hear yeah. He also, by the way, um, if I remember correctly, he wrote between midnight and seven in the morning.
1: Really?
0: Yeah. Well. I'd like to uh, thank you so much, Erica Heller, for for bringing bringing the this to us and you know really bearing your soul as, as far you know people don't like to examine the you know the yeah. the kind of difficult issues and it sounds like your book really um, like I keep saying is a therapeutic venture for so many of the of the incredible artists and, and writers that you had right so thank you so much for that and thank you on a On a personal note, getting a little emotional, um, I lost a good friend this week, uh, editor Rick Murphy from The Independent, and I would give anything to have a last, Um, as he would call it, sandwich with him. Uh, A nice lion sandwich. So thank you for bringing one last lunch to us. My uh, pleasure. Thank you. uh, Alec, would you like to take us out? Uh,
2: yeah, um, I hope everybody enjoyed the listening. I hope everybody has a good week. Um, and uh, you know, this sounds like the kind of a, a, a book that uh, stirs so many thoughts and uh, emotional memories. Um, and and so I would say, cherish the people you have in your life. Try and break some bread with them, even if you're at a distance. Um, and 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 don't leave any conversations unsaid, because uh, that's one takeaway I certainly have is. These, uh, you don't want to uh, not say something and then, and then miss the chance to, uh, to have that experience. So uh, everybody, be well and stay well.